This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where people from our firm share their insights on developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. A summer sell-off in the commodities markets has seen oil continue its year-long fall, with base metals now joining in. Jeff Curry, Global Head of Commodities Research at Goldman Sachs, is here today making his second appearance on the podcast. Congratulations, you're the first repeat guest. Great to be here. Um, we'll talk about competing views on oil and how volatility in China is having an impact on the global marketplace. Jeff, welcome to the program. Thank you. When we first had you on in January, you just put out a research report, The New Oil Order, that explored the implications of shale production in the U.S. and its impact on global energy markets. Oil was low then, but it's lower now. And your latest research posits that this low price environment could be around for a while. How has your thinking evolved on the topic since that report was first published earlier this year? Well, when you look at the basic tenets of the new oil order, one of the key tenets is this idea that capital needs to be sidelined. And the reason for that is the time to build in shale is far lower than we've ever seen in any other commodity. And what do I mean by time to build? Time to build is the period between when you commit capital and when you get production. If you take the large ultra deep water projects in Brazil, that time to build is roughly 11 years between when you commit capital and when you get production. Iron ore, it's 10. Super majors, it's four to five. What do you think it is in shale? The number is 14 days. This is a game changer because what it means, you put capital in, production goes up. So for the first time, we have the capability to throttle supply up and down based upon capital. Now, why is this important and how has it shifted our thinking recently? Back in January, we made the point, if prices rise prematurely before the market rebalances, capital will re-enter the market, drilling will increase and push prices back down. We put a piece out this spring titled The Self-Defeating Rally, because that's exactly what happened. The higher prices this spring opened up equity markets, bond markets, cash flow returned to more normal levels, and guess what happened? Drilling increased tremendously, which brings us to the current environment in which we're now in a greater oversupply than what we were in January, which is why we just reduced our longer-term forecast to much lower in 2016 to $45 a barrel. So you've talked about some of the risks in recent research. There are fears that all this oil that's being produced will surpass storage capacity, which could have an even bigger impact on price. How significant a risk is that for the industry? It is increasing substantially, particularly given the larger size of the surplus. But I think let's go back and think about the economics of why this is important. And we've got to think about what makes energy different from all other commodity markets. And what makes it different is how difficult it is to store. It requires expensive infrastructure to store it. Let's think about that in the context of metals. Metals, all you need is a parking lot, a chain link fence, and maybe a guard dog, and you can stack this stuff to the moon. Oil, once the storage capacity is breached by the surplus, you have no choice but to bring supply back in line with demand because there's nothing else to do it. You can't pour it out against the side of the well like you could stack metal. So you have to see supply brought in line with demand. And to create that balance, prices typically spike down to cash costs, which could be as low as $20 a barrel. And again, when we look at how high inventory levels are right now, the probability of that happening has increased tremendously. You've also talked about financial stress as a key factor for the industry. Earlier this year, many shale producers found funding readily available. You talked about this earlier, and production stayed high. Um, has the environment changed a little bit since the spring? For that group of companies that we were focused on in the spring, um, it hasn't. 
but what's changed is that group is no longer large enough to rebalance the market. So when we think about what was our story that we were telling back in the winter and spring, was that prices would have to stay low enough, long enough to create real default risk with the companies with the weak balance sheets such that they really begin to throttle back production. In fact, we estimated back then that $40 a barrel for six months would create significant default risk. Now the problem is that today, that surplus is so large that this group of companies cannot even come close to recreating that balance. So now the focus has turned to the more financially healthy companies, investment grade. Here, when we think about default rates in debt, they're not as important as management's discipline with capital, as well as the equity market's view of these companies. In fact, my focus now has actually turned to the investor as opposed to the producer, because as long as these companies are funded, and the expectations are for a substantial rebound in prices, these companies will have access to capital and the ability to continue to increase production. And so when we think about what needs to happen in and terms of- And continue to put pressure, downward pressure exactly, on price. Exactly, exactly. So, yeah. But when we think about the capitulation, because we think about if the investor is providing these companies with capital, we go back to 1998 and 1999. If you recall, The, the Economist had a, it was a cover page of The Economist with $5 oil is here to stay. That created the capitulation in which created the rebound in prices. We think a similar dynamic has to take place here is you've got to see a capitulation so that many of these companies just have their funding cut off and we begin to seriously rebalance this market. So is the world of 45 to $50 per barrel roughly a new normal for the industry? And what is the forward price curve telling us today about what the market expects? When we think about where we view the long-term price of oil, um, we put it at around $50 a barrel. And if we think about where is the long end of the forward curve, it's somewhere in that 50 to $55 a barrel. So it's not too far off the mark. When we think about why is the price so low today, it's because we need to have prices below that long-term price to create some financial pain in the industry to start to see supplies taken off the market to be able to create that correction. But I think the key here is when we think about a long-term price of $50 a barrel today, that's a substantial decline from the long-term price, let's say four or five years ago, that was closer to 100. So you've been reasonably bearish on the market. There are some bulls out there, and some of them are quite vocal. One of the most common arguments they make is that OPEC is at near maximum capacity. Production growth will inevitably start to taper off, and prices will rise far sooner than your lower for longer thesis projects. How do you account for that kind of argument about spare capacity and the lack of spare capacity at OPEC? Well, when we go back to Economics 101, one of the basic conclusions was that an industry that operates at 100% capacity utilization is typically a competitive industry. And that's exactly what's happened to oil. When we think about what has shale done, you've heard the term that is a manufacturing process, it has turned energy into a competitive industry, which makes it very difficult to maintain a cartel. And so when we think about OPEC, shale technologies have neutralized the ability to maintain a cartel. As a result, they need to go to capacity. So this is consistent with the economic theory. And not only will they go to capacity, they will likely start to grow capacity as, as we go forward because market share should really be their primary focus. In Libya, in the Mideast, in Iraq, there are obviously significant ongoing conflicts that could have a big impact on global oil production. Do those conflicts pose a threat one way or the other to your outlook for near-term prices? Well, the way I like to think about this problem is geopolitical risk has never been higher, but oil at risk has never been lower. 
Why do I say that? Well, when we look at Iran, they already have a substantial reduction in their exports given the sanctions that were imposed on them several years ago. We look at Libya due to the civil war there. Um, they're operating at somewhere around 400,000 barrels per day against a potential capacity of 1.4 million barrels per day. We look at production in places like Nigeria, Venezuela. It's already been idled back. And when we think about where is production growth coming from, let's say places like Iraq or Saudi Arabia, the security has proven to be more than sufficient. When you think about what's different about Iraq today than at previous times in history is that most of the production is done by JVs. This is important because foreign companies would not put large-scale capital work in these countries if they didn't feel comfortable about the security. And a lot of times it's even their own mercenaries. But the key here is, and we saw this last year as ISIS started to move towards the south of Iraq, it could not get down into the Basra fields. And so we would argue the places that are standing in terms of increasing production right now are relatively safe, and you only have potential upside from the other regions that have already cut production back. You mentioned Iran. How might their return to the markets affect the global price environment as well as sanctions roll off? Well, when we think about what will it do to the long-term price, the answer is nothing. And the reason for that is because it has a cost basis well below that of shale. Because we think about what determines the long-term price of oil, it's shale. Shale will be the marginal barrel as we look out into the future. Now, that doesn't mean it won't create a surplus next year as it begins to come on and help keep prices underneath that long-term price. Again, going back to our point, you know, our near-term forecast ranges from 38 to 45 over the next year, despite a long-term price forecast of somewhere around 50. And that's because we expect the market continue to remain in surplus. And so when we think about what does Iran do as they begin to come online, it'll just amplify that surplus and put more downward pressure on near-term prices. But again, it does not impact the long-term price because the cost basis is below that of shale. There are some other bulls out there who say that U.S. production is actually falling faster than the official statistics show. Uh, how do you respond to that argument? Two weeks ago, we had a data observation from the EIA that showed a sharp decline in U.S. output in May. However, when you dug into the statistics, they actually reported a significant increase in storage levels as well as what we call the balancing term, which is an error term, which leads a lot of uncertainty whether or not that was a true decline. Now, we don't think it has declined that much for several reasons. One, our own models point to relatively flat production. When you actually look at the pipeline data and scrape the pipes, it also points to flat production. And then finally, you look at company guidance. It points to flat production between third quarter and fourth quarter. So we put it all together. We would estimate in the current environment, U.S. production is likely flat, not down three, 400,000 barrels per day, as some data points would suggest. So much of your new oil order thesis has been about supply. Let's talk a little bit about the demand side. How has the recent turmoil in China and some of the other emerging markets, Brazil, affected the demand side? And what can we expect to see on demand and does it matter? In the places like Brazil, it's had a significant impact on oil demand. But in places like China, it hasn't. And that's, there's a really important reason why it hasn't. When you listen to policymakers in China, they've made it very clear that structural reforms are going to be their focus. And that means turning down the investment side of the economy and turning up the consumer side of the economy. And if we look at commodity demand, it clearly tells you that they're being successful at this. I like to take commodities and divide them into capex commodities, things like iron ore, coking coal, and steel, and then opex commodities, things like oil and gas, nickel, and then aluminum. 
And another way to think about this is you have to build the building with CapEx commodities and then you got to heat it and cool it with OpEx commodities. And so if we look at the demand for OpEx commodities in China, they're actually up substantially year over year. Gasoline, the most consumer of consumer fuels, is up 17% year over year. And as we move down that scale from OpEx towards CapEx and we get to steel, which is the most CapEx intensive of all commodities, its demand is declining at 6.2% year over year which really underscores this difference between OPEX and CAPEX. And so we think about China, we expect demand to hold up next year and going forward for oil. However, I don't want to dismiss what you're saying about what's going on in Brazil. Many of the commodity producing countries, and I'm going to put Canada and Australia into that group, are struggling in the current environment, and we're seeing weaker demand out of those regions. But when we think about really what's going to drive demand over the next several years, we see being China, India and the OECD countries and demand is holding up in those regions. So let's talk a little bit about the non-oil commodities. At some greater length, you see a big sell-off. Some base metals have reached six-year low prices. Do you expect that to continue given the dynamics you described? Or can we expect to see some leveling up or even increase in some of the non-oil commodities? We see downward pressure lower for longer across almost every commodity right now. And the reason for that is this idea of a negative feedback loop that exists between these commodities, demand growth in emerging markets, and emerging market FX. Let me go into the story a little more in depth. There's what we call the three Ds of macro. And these three Ds are themes that have been put in place over the last decade. They're not going to unwind over the next six months. It's going to take five years or so for them, for them to play out. The three Ds the first one is what we call deflation. And again, it was 10 years in the making. Due to high commodity prices, we created excess production capacity across every commodity, whether it's iron ore, coke and coal, copper, aluminum, oil. You pick your commodity, all of them are oversupplied. And Everyone this, built up capacity exactly. for the boom and the classic cycle. Exactly. Right. And so we have downward pressure due to the supply side. But the second D is what we call divergence. Divergence in growth in the United States against the rest of the world. If the U.S. hikes rates this year, it'll be the first time in a decade since the U.S. has hiked rates. In other words, you can say that the U.S. has had an easy monetary policy in place for a decade. This is a huge jump on the rest of the world. Think about China. It's just now getting to the point it's trying to ease. Or Europe. It didn't start easing into really any significance until 2012. So if we think about the U.S., its growth rate is diverging from the rest of the world. So what it says is you want to be long the U.S. dollar. And when we think about what does that mean in terms of commodities, it means that commodity currencies like the Canadian dollar, the Australian dollar, Chilean peso, Brazilian real are all going to be under pressure, as we particularly have seen over the course of you know, the last several months. Now, what does this do to the cost of producing all those commodities? It puts downward pressure, and it does it through the wage channel. You know, let's take something like copper in Chile. Forty percent of the cost of producing copper is labor, and what is labor paid in? local wages, which would be Chilean peso. So as the Chilean peso weakens with a stronger dollar, it puts downward pressure on the cost structure of producing these commodities. So that's the second D. Let's go to the third D. The third D is deleveraging. Again, this story is a decade in the making. When we look at the big boom in emerging markets over the last decade, many of these emerging markets created significant macro imbalances and amassed large amounts of debt, particularly in places like China on the credit side. Now, what that means going forward is they're going to have to delever. And the delevering will require, as we've seen in China, a substantial reduction in investment in places that are, let's say, heavy industry, which puts downward pressure on the demand for commodities. 
So let's take a commodity like copper. You can see all three Ds at work. So you see the deflation, excess supply all over the world putting downward pressure on copper. You see the divergence with a stronger dollar leading to a weaker Chilean peso, putting downward pressure on the cost of producing copper in Chile. And then finally, you think about weaker demand coming out of China due to deleveraging, reducing the demand for copper out of Chile. Now, there's an important feedback loop that I think is the real critical story here that exists between these three, in the sense that, let's say, deflation, it puts downward pressure on steel prices and copper prices, which are inputs into oil, which then reduce the cost of producing oil. A lower oil price strengthens the U.S. economy and leads to a stronger U.S. dollar, which leads to a weaker Chilean peso, a weaker Australian dollar, and lower cost of producing steel and copper. Then think about this. As you have a stronger U.S. dollar, rising U.S. rates increases the funding costs for the emerging markets, which exacerbates the deleveraging problem, which then further reduces the demand for these commodities. So you can see it's a negative feedback loop that just continues to reinforce lower commodity prices as we look forward. So I think it's really important to think about this in this broader macro context, and that's why these cycles are so correlated. So given that dynamic, the 3D dynamic, we can call it, what places are most vulnerable around the world right now? the big commodity producers, but it's not as obvious as that. So obviously the commodity producers would be places like Canada, Australia, Chile, Brazil, and even potentially the Middle East. But it's important to distinguish the countries that are getting investment versus the countries that are not getting investment. So if you take a country like Brazil, it's getting hit on both sides. It's not getting significant investment in, let's say, its iron ore sectors, but it's also getting a terms of trade shock and consumption is also going down. So it's getting hit on both the investment and consumption side. Same thing with Chile. However, you turn to Saudi Arabia, it's a very interesting case. You're seeing a significant increase in investment. Going back to your question earlier, what's going on with OPEC? They're taking the production up to capacity and taking capacity up. There is a record number of rigs in the field in Saudi Arabia right now. So in other words, you say they're getting an investment boom. It's just not happening in Saudi Arabia, but most of the lower cost producers around the world are attracting capital right now because they're a safer place to put money in an environment in which we have much lower commodity prices. So again, I think the important point here is distinguish between countries that are getting investments and countries that are not. When you think about this forecast and this thesis, what are the unknown unknowns? What, what's the uncertainty of this forecast? What could really change the outlook in a dramatic way? Ironically, it would be the U.S. economy faltering. And the reason why I say that is it would likely force the Federal Reserve to return to a much more accommodative monetary policy and potentially increasing QE again. And why is this important? Because it would throw a lifeline to the emerging markets, particularly places like Brazil and the other emerging markets that would then create more demand for commodities. But also what it would do is it would weaken the dollar again. Remember I was making the argument before in the 3Ds with the negative feedback loop, it would reverse it. And as the dollar would begin to weaken, it would put upward pressure on the cost of producing commodities around the world. It's interesting, I was visiting a client recently in Houston, and they asked me the same question. And the client, who's a producer of oil in Houston, responded to me back, so you're telling me that if the U.S. economy weakens, that our business will do much better? I go, yeah, that's what I'm telling you. But that's a truism going clear back to the whole entire post-war era, that higher oil prices usually are associated with a weaker U.S. economy and stronger E&P prospects. However, what's different is that we're telling the causality very differently than what we have historically said. Here, we're saying the U.S. economy causes the oil price as opposed to the oil price causing the U.S. The US economy. economy. Right. 
But I think the point here is we know these correlations exist. They've gone back over decades. However, the one thing that I am baffled by is what actually causes these causalities. The only thing we know for sure is that when you look at these super cycles, there's one in the 50s after World War II, there was one in the 70s after a period of war, and then we had the one in the 2000s after the Iraq War. Is it the possibility that you actually have production capacity reduced substantially due to these events, which then creates a rise in commodity prices leading to a weaker U.S. dollar? That's still uncertain in my thinking, but I think it does just really underscore the importance of this negative feedback loop and this correlation that exists between commodities, FX, and emerging market demand. So it's all doom and gloom for the producers, at least, in the short term. What do you think could eventually lead to a rebalancing of the market? This was a decade in the making. Will it take a decade to uh, work itself out? I don't want to say it's all gloom and doom for the companies in the countries that are low on the cost curve, things are still doing relatively well for them. But in terms of thinking about how does this market resolve itself, it'll rebalance itself from a barrel or metric ton perspective within the next several years. But the real imbalance in these markets is on the capital side. There's still way too much capital chasing these markets under the belief that oil will pop back up to $100 to $150 a barrel in the very near future. And eventually that will dry up. And the only thing that will dry up that capital is a substantial reduction in the expectations of a rebound in price. Once people capitulate and throw in the towel and think that, hey, prices are lower for longer, then that capital would likely leave, and then you can make the arguments for a rebound in longer-term prices. But let's go back to the last cycle. Oil prices collapsed in 1986. The oil market rebalanced by 1988, and prices popped back up to, they went from 10 back up to $20 a barrel. But it took until 1998 for those capital markets to rebalance with the creation of the super majors. Because you remember, it was a lot of consolidation that happened that created companies like ExxonMobil. You had BP, Shell, Total. Um, so it took 12 years. I don't think it's going to take that long in the current environment, but it's not going to happen in the next year or two. Excellent. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, it's great to have you on once again. Great. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. I'm Jake Seward. Thanks for listening. This podcast was recorded on September 11, 2015. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.